1: It's the same stuff as we've been talking about for many years. You've always got to use data proportionately. This, this is going to be even more critical when you're dealing with sensitive personal data or special category data. Data which is related to allegations of criminal impropriety is treated in the same way to special category data.
0: In this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, I'm joined by my partner from Life with GDPR, Jonathan Armstrong, to talk about the recent interim fine levied against the law firm Decker for its role in the ENRC scandal, along with its former partner, Neil Girard. There's lots of lessons learned for law firms and for internal investigations on this episode. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Erica Salmon-Byrne. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back again with Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quarterly Compliance, for another episode. Today, we're going to take a little bit of a detour into one of the perhaps most delicious areas for all lawyers, which, of course, is lawyers gossiping about other lawyers who get into trouble. And I would preface this with when I was in law school, I went to see a lawyer in the town where my law school was located for some reason, and he was reading the monthly bar journal. And uh, he relayed to me that the first thing he did was open the bar journal, the magazine to the back of the magazine to see who had been disbarred and disciplined. And I thought, why would anyone ever do that? Forty years later, when I get my bar journal, the first thing I do is flip it back to disbarments and suspensions to see to who got it. But here we have something very different because it's public. And we had a very big law firm get in trouble. Jonathan, you've been a partner in big law. I've been a partner at a law firm and an associate in big law. And how all of this happened and uh, the fallout continues, so... With that incredibly long-winded introduction, why don't you tell us about what the court finally ruled in the long-running ENRC deckert Neil Gerard lawsuit?
1: Yeah, I will, and it's important to say I think that that we're we're not at full time on this yet. There's some more hearings to come, but it's certainly a mess, and there's certainly been a number of interim developments, which which we can talk about now. What's this about? ENRC were a mining business, which was listed in the UK. And they asked Mr. Gerard, who was then at DLA, he subsequently moved to Deckert, to look into some possible concerns. And effectively, the case is about him going wider than his original brief and to digress for a minute and apologies Tom if I told you this story before but my grandfather in in the second world war and he was responsible for maintaining the small arms defences around the northeast coast and that was things like hand grenades handheld weapons rather than the big guns and he had a truck and a driver and he would go up these installations and maintain the weapons. And he told a story, and I'm not sure how involved he was in this, we never really got to the bottom of that, of a time when the garrisons of soldiers and the people around them really had no food. All the meat supplies had been reduced, there were blockades that the U-boats were maintaining, but they had a lot of hand grenades that were unstable or had passed their sell-by date or whatever. So they came up with an idea of standing on the cliff, throwing the hand grenades into the sea to explode shoals of fish, which they'd then get a rowing boat and pull up in a net and then they could feed the garrison and people round about. So why on earth is this relevant to ENRC? In some respects, it's almost the nature of internal investigations that particularly under GDPR, you're meant to do line fishing. You're meant to look at the suspect or the suspected wrongdoing and dangle your line and see if you catch something. But the allegation, if you like, against Mr. Girard and his team in this case is that instead, They threw hand grenades into the sea and netted everything that came to the top. But even more concerningly, it seems that when ENRC didn't think that was such a big problem, he went to the serious fraud office and effectively, I don't know whether you have the word, Tom, dobbed in his own client. So he became whistleblower on his own client and he also went to the press and we've had a hearing before Mr Justice Waxman the judge has said that he lied continuously particularly about his leak to the times and the breaking news today 15th of August when we're reporting this is Mr Justice Waxman has decided that the conduct is so egregious that he, the judge, will be writing or has written to the regulator to recommend that there is an investigation which could lead to disbarment in this case. The judge has been at pains to point out that at, at this time, he is reporting Neil Girard, the individual lawyer, and not Deckard, his firm. But he has passed his judgment on to the SRA. And we know that in an earlier hearing a cost order was made against Deckard, who have paid two sorry, twenty million pounds in interim costs to ENRC, whilst the wider inquiry into the investigation and the costs of the litigation goes on. So I agree with you that many lawyers always look to the back pages. I can remember feeling incredibly old when I saw my first colleague struck off, and that was a genuinely sad day to see a colleague struck off, even if it wasn't somebody you particularly liked. I've been in the difficult position recently of having to report a fellow lawyer to the regulator, which caused some I have to say, because you like to think that professional colleagues are a, a bad practice. You like to see the good in people. But you're certainly right that this has been the talk of the town here. And, of course, there are additional allegations against the same lawyer that he ran an alleged school in Switzerland to coach witnesses in another case, and that he was responsible for the false imprisonment of people. Uh, These allegations, of course, are yet to come to court, and he may or may not be guilty of those. But it's certainly, I think, if you read the judgment, it's a dark day, unfortunately, not only for Mr. Girard, for Deckert, but also, I think, for the legal profession as a whole. So in GDPR terms... What does this mean? It's the same stuff as we've been talking about for many years. You've always got to use data proportionately. This is, all, this is going to be even more critical when you're dealing with sensitive personal data or special category data. And data which is related to allegations of criminal impropriety is treated in the same way to special category data. So you've always got to have a proper reason to investigate somebody. You can't throw a hand grenade into the sea. You've got to get your rod and line out and look only at their emails, or only at emails for them and people in that team. Unless and until you've got a suspicion that more people are involved. You can't ha- the days have gone when you can run investigations by getting 200 paralegals in a document review and sweating everything till you find something that you're interested in, which may or may not have been the thing that you are asked to investigate in the first place. So I think it is sad news for the profession. But if it serves as a reminder to compliance professionals and to lawyers that you need to structure internal investigations properly, then maybe some good will come out of this whole disaster.
0: Jonathan, how does – it seems to me that this has a lot of implications for the way law firms do business. And I say that having been a partner where as a partner or perhaps a member or shareholder of a law firm, which is a professional corporation, you have a wide, wide swath that you can engage in your own practice. And the more money you bring in, the wider swath it tends to be, it lacks oversight. Do you think that this will require law firms to move to a more, I shouldn't say more robust oversight, I should say oversight, perhaps of the way partners run investigations or more or less routine legal services than we've seen in the past? Or is your sense that is actually ongoing now?
1: I think there's elements of that ongoing now. I was asked by an investor in a business to provide some oversight into an ongoing internal investigation to give them a feel for whether I thought the investigation was thorough enough, whether it was planned well enough, whether it was directed well enough. So I think there are definitely some people who are being more thorough about looking at the investigations that are done on their behalf or in their name. I think whenever we speak at compliance conferences, we always hear stuff or we say stuff about you get the behaviours you reward. And that's maybe another lesson for the legal profession from this case. Obviously, the particular individual here came to Deckard with presumably promises as to his book of business. It seems as if there were emails with him saying things like, I'm fulfilling the promises I made when I moved over, the SFO cranking up the wheel, bad news for the client, great news for Deckard, these sort of things. We've Money has made some lawyers misalign the interests of their and their pockets and i think that does have to change maybe i'm naive but i think when i qualified i didn't see a lot of that i didn't see a lot of lawyers milking their clients for money and my perception is that is happening more and if we run law firms out and out businesses Rather, as, rather than as professional organisations, then I think this is an issue that we're going to have to face more and more. And I've got a claim at the moment that we're defending where our very real concerns about the conduct of the lawyers on the other side, charging somebody about £40,000 in costs and a £12,000 insurance policy that only provides twenty five thousand pounds worth of cover for insurance and a claim that's worth at most three thousand pounds. How do you justify the economics of all of that potentially giving a client a burden of let's say eighty thousand pounds with a chance to recover three? If somebody walked in if you walk if somebody walked into a bookmaker's and you said I have got a chance of you winning £3,000 on the next haul. To win £3,000, you're going to have to give me £80,000, which I'm going to take if the horse doesn't come in first. Most people, other than the most severe gambling addicts, or people who think they know the horse inside out, would walk straight out again. Why are we putting up with that as a legal profession and compliance professionals? So I think it is a sad case. It is talk of the town. But hopefully, it's also a point of reflection. And we can try and think about what we want the profession to become, how we want to conduct internal investigations, and more importantly, how we can come back to the central role of a lawyer, if you like, to look at the courts, their duties to the court, and their duties to clients above the duty to their own mortgage payments,
0: Jonathan, you mentioned that there was an interim payment made by decker twenty million pounds. Could you explain what an interim payment in this type of proceeding is, and that there's i recall there's perhaps an additional ruling coming out regarding the s f o and what that ruling might entail as well
1: yeah, so effectively e n r c sought costs orders against both Deckett and against the SFO. And the claim against the SFO was effectively that the SFO received information, Gerard, which he shouldn't have given them. And they're effectively saying that was, if you like, a breach Of the duties that the SFO owed to the NRC and they were seeking a payment of three million pounds as an interim payment on account from the SFO. The SFO is opposing that application and effectively the SFO is saying that the issue of cost should be reserved until a second trial because there is a possibility that will affect the entitlement to costs. So the SFO is effectively saying, and I'm summarizing what are incredibly complicated proceedings, but they're effectively saying that the SFO conduct is not as egregious as the conduct of Deckert. And ENRC has a little bit more to prove against the SFO say, uh, uh, around elements like loss would be foreseeable to ENRC before it will finally make a costs order stick against the Serious Fraud Office. As far as Gerard and Decker are concerned, then, of course, Again, paraphrasing or summarizing what are incredibly complicated proceedings. Until the judgment, Deckert's position was that they had investigated Gerard and that they were satisfied that he had not acted improperly. And as a result, neither ran what we call here, you might call it there, a shotgun defense. So neither... Uh, uh, Deckert nor Gerard blamed the other and as I understand it Deckert were perfectly happy to stand alongside Gerard and say that there was no criticism of the steps that he had took and that changed somewhat after the uh, judgment was handed down by Mr Justice Waxman as I understand it there is now separate representation for Mr. Gerard. They had previously had the same legal team, Deckard and, and, and Gerard. And, and as a result, Deckard have said firstly, and Neil Gerard is no longer part of the partnership and he's retired. And secondly, they've said that they do accept that a cost order will be made against them. That's likely to be on what's called an indemnity basis, so the higher standard, where effectively it's up to them. The burden of proof is reversed on costs. It usually results in a higher costs award. And they've said effectively that they know that the costs are going to be more than £20 million. So here's a payment on account of £20 million, and we know we're going to owe you more. So, in in simple terms, that's what's happened, and there are obviously further hearings to come. And Deckard has accepted that, as far as costs concerned, they stand in Gerard's shoes. So there's what's called joint and several liability. They could theoretically say, "Mr. Gerard lied to us," and so we want him to pay us some of the £20 million that we've already coughed up. It's fair to say that some people say that the costs will be somewhat higher. There's estimates of around £50 million for this litigation. So £20 million may end up being only less than half of the eventual liability for the law firm involved.
0: Well, I think you said it best, Jonathan. A dark day for the legal profession and certainly a sad day, but one which we will deliciously continue to follow and perhaps we can revisit this topic as
1: well. Yes, indeed. Yeah, thank you, Tom.
0: This is Tom Foxkin. Thank you for joining me for this exploration of the Oracle FCPA Enforcement Action. I'm thrilled to announce that multiple podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network recently awarded W3 awards. All Things Investigations, the Hughes Hubbard podcast was awarded a silver award for General Series Law and Legal Services for podcast. Because that's what heroes do, uh, one for arts and cultures in podcast. Hidden Crime, that's Gwen Hassan's podcast, one for crime for podcast. Compliance into the Weeds, with my good friend, Matt Kelly, uh, Matt and I won an award for best co-hosts for podcasts. And the Hill Country podcast was also honored for arts and culture for podcast. And then finally, Life with GDPR, that's my podcast with Jonathan Armstrong for professional service for podcast. And I'm really proud to announce that a gold award was given to Trekking Through Compliance once again, in arts and culture for podcasts. So the Compliance Podcast Network continues to garner awards. I hope that you will check out one or more of these podcasts. This is Tom Fox. I hope you'll join me next week on another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report.